Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. Meanwhile, in Kherson, this time we get a report from the front line of Putin's war. The Ukrainian city was occupied by Russian troops in March 2022, shortly after the conflict began. But they were forced to retreat eight months later, a psychologically important victory for Ukraine. That wasn't the end of the story, though. Kherson is under continual bombardment by Russian artillery from the other side of the strategically important Dnipro River. The city's military administration says there have been more than 2,300 shellings this year. The Biden administration has just signed off $175 million worth of military assistance ahead of a visit by Ukraine's President Zelensky to Washington, D.C. But £60 billion worth of aid is under threat from Republicans who are using it as a pawn in domestic U.S. politics. And Hungary has said it opposes any plan to let Ukraine join the EU. Let's hear now from regular Byline Times correspondent Zarina Zabriskie and photojournalist Paul Conroy, who is training local journalists in Hesson. Paul, I'll start with you. Welcome to the Byline Times podcast. You are a veteran of many war zones. What does it feel like to be in Hesson at the moment? Hesson is probably one of the most intense. I think Syria and the final days of Homs was the only thing that's ever come close to this. This is a city that's been liberated, <laughs> but you wouldn't know it. It's almost like an open siege. There is a back way out. There's a road to Mikolaev. But daily, morning, noon and night, there is a constant bombardment from the other side of the river where the Russians were forced back to. And this is full-scale, wide-area battlefield weapons that are being used in urban civilian environments. So the damage caused by such weapons is vast. These were weapons that were designed to take out columns of tanks and infantry, and now they're being used against civilians. Out of all the wars I've covered, I think this particular war is the nearest I've got to total war, where its gloves are off, there are no concessions to civilians. With that comes all of the weapons civilians most fear, blind cab bombs that are flown in from 40 miles away, 1,250 kilograms of high explosive, that roughly goes on target. Then you get down to the artillery systems. You have grad rockets, which go back to the siege of Stalingrad. They're old technology. They're not very smart technology. They go in generally the right direction. Then you have 155 millimeter artillery, which is more accurate, but just as deadly as the grad rockets. Then you have the range of mortars. You also have drones overhead daily monitoring, picking targets. A couple of weeks ago, I had a drone follow me and drop some kind of grenade behind the car. So it's a relentless battle for these people just to exist. And when I say open siege, you can leave, but it's leaving everything you know, everyone you know, and going into the unknown, which is every refugee's most terrible choice is to leave behind their home and step outside what you know. But they're successfully depopulating the town. It's come from 300,000, between 30 and 60,000 people remain. And there is a steady flow of people out. Relentless, bloody grind of the civilian population. Every day is a war crime here. And Zarina, you posted on your 
X account at Zarina Zabriskie on December the 10th, 71 attacks on the Hesson region, 264 shells fired from mortars, artillery, grads, tanks, drones and aviation, 19 shells at Hesson itself, one person killed. And this, you say, is way below average. Yes, Adrian, I run the numbers practically daily, and I wanted to correct the number because you said that according to the city administration, there were 2,003 shillings this year, but this is not so. Based on my statistics that I get from the city administration, there's anywhere from 300 to 500 challenge attacks on the Kherson Oblast, which makes it about 4,000, 5,000 a week on the Kherson Oblast, which is a bigger area. And every day with the Kherson, if you count the shells, it's about 50 or so on the average. And day from day differs. Like today, for instance, we had one of the worst days. It seems like we don't have the numbers yet. They usually arrive in the morning, but we were trying to cover and report from the ground today, and we couldn't possibly be there. We only went to three sites and our contacts would be still sending us all the other sites that were hit. So only today, for instance, there was a nursery school hit that we reported from, like five-story residential house building, grocery store, and auto repair. And the story goes on. Somebody I spoke to within the last hour was attending funeral, only they had to hide in a morgue from the shell and during the funeral and could not proceed to the cemetery for the burial because because it's so dangerous. And every day we see everything from children's libraries to children's hospitals and general hospitals being attacked. Like Paul said, it's relentless, the terrible sound of Shahid drones, which are nicknamed mopeds here, because they sound really terrible sound to it, like it makes you irk. And these are Shahids for you. The world's attention has been turned on Israel and Gaza. That is perhaps understandable because of the terrible loss of life and devastation in the Middle East. Do you feel that Ukraine is in danger of becoming the forgotten war? I think that's very much already happened. And that is dangerous, not just for Ukraine. That is dangerous for Europe, for world peace. This is a dream come true for Putin. And while our eyes are off the ball, terrible things are happening in Ukraine. On a geopolitical level, this threatens Europe. And Europe's ability affects the rest of the world. Yes, do look at Israel. Do look at the situation in Gaza, of course. But we look away from Ukraine at our peril. Now, I understand people get fatigued with wars, and then another one comes along and there's a lot of journalists left Ukraine and went to Israel. The big stations who have budgets to allocate throughout the year, they have to toss up between Gaza and Ukraine. And this is all the pragmatic side of it, but the reality is you look away from this war at your peril. I would like to chime in with my favourite subject, which is the hybrid war. 
because here we have the perfect example and it would be good to distract for a second from all the distraction that we see here locally and have like a bird's eye view because globally the Kremlin is using all means possible to shift the public opinion and distraction or deflection is only one of the maneuvers. And in this respect, using Hamas and Palestine-Ukrainian war definitely is part of the toolbox. It's being used as a deflection from the day one. And speaking of the hybrid war, I want to touch on the internal situation because it's been going on here also. For instance, the rumors, which one of the main tools for the propaganda, are being circulated of all sorts from Ukraine, Shell, and Kherson, which when you hear is practically impossible to conceive that anybody would come up with such rumor. But nevertheless, it's here and it's present in the social media. And there are also rumors that Russians are coming back to Kherson and will punish everybody who's now anti-Russian. And there are the fake reports of Ukrainian soldiers from the front and so on and so forth. And of course, the bottom line here is that Russia is using terrorist tactics to beat the spirit, to demoralize the Ukrainians and to beat them into submission. Hence the -the round-the-clock assaults and attacks that we're talking about. But I must say personally, and I hope Paul agrees with me, that it is very, very difficult to demoralize Ukrainians in general and Kyrsonians in particular. They are resisting with every word every move, every breath, there's theaters going on, cafes are open. So resistance is very, very strong. I'd echo what Zarina said, that sense amongst the people of Kherson is they've been occupied, they've been liberated, they're not going back to occupation. For the Russians, as much as they would like to think that they can come back across the river, there are no bridges. And we've seen the difficulties the Ukrainians have getting across the other side of the river. But this has put out that, you know, Russia's coming back. It's a physical impossibility. And if they did come back, I'm pretty sure they've been for a nasty surprise. Their spirit is unbroken. They watch the world, I think, with a sense of trepidation. We what we all do with the possibility of Trump getting back in and the kind of Pandora's box of horrors that would open, not just for Ukraine, but I think for the whole civilised world. I've seen in many wars, once the genie is out the bottle, in Libya, Gaddafi was never putting them people back in the bottle once the bottle had been opened. And I see exactly the same in Ukraine. You may occupy and try to crush it, but you will not defeat it. You will not defeat the spirit of the Ukrainian people. That is one thing that I can say with complete surety. Even if the Russians came back with massive force, they'd be opening the gates of hell for themselves. That's the spirit that the Ukrainians are currently showing. And Paul, picking up on Zarina's point about hybrid war, I don't know if this next part of the conversation fits into that, but people may be aware, although it hasn't been massively well reported in the UK, that both Slovakian and Polish truckers have been blockading the border to Ukraine. Now, the ostensible cause of that dispute has been the abolition of a permit system since the invasion by Russia, which Polish and Slovakian truckers say allows Ukrainian truckers to undercut them. We have 
Viktor Orban, the Hungarian president, saying that he is opposed to talks which could potentially see Ukraine joining the European Union. Are these examples of hybrid war or are they people perhaps just failing to see the bigger picture? I'm always curious when I see Orban and his overt support for Russia, why really Europe tolerates him without any form of sanction. That's a perfect example of hybrid war. He's got a European country kind of votes against just about anything you can vote against, and he's in Europe. So I'm not surprised by Orban at all. I don't think anyone should really be. The Polish truckers, I can only imagine that the long arm of the Kremlin is stoking dissatisfaction. I can't see it being otherwise. You know, Poland have been such staunch allies of Ukraine, and then all of a sudden, almost like a union that they can get their fingers into and stare the scent. I think Serena would probably agree that this is a classic example of hybrid war. I don't think that came out of nowhere. And I think that's what was in this situation. Yes, I agree. And because it's always there. So he's using every leverage that he can. And, you know, while on the Finnish border we have migrants and the crisis there, here we have the economic and the monetary leverage being used. And we know from years of the hybrid war that the mechanism behind it, it's easy to incite the moods or to shift certain demographic groups by using any social media, you name it. And the Russians are very, very good at it. But the West is not well equipped to fight this influence campaigns. There is no enough understanding, recognition and awareness. And there's not enough trained personnel, people who can counteract. There's action and there's not enough counteraction. And when it comes to hybrid war, I'm afraid to say that the Kremlin is still winning due to the lack of awareness, due to the lack of action. And in the United States, again, I don't know if this fits into your definition of hybrid war or if it's just simply US domestic politics, but Republican senators voted 51 to 49 against a bill which would have granted $61 billion in aid to Ukraine. Now, the ostensible cause of that is arguments about the treatment of people on the border with Mexico. But in any event, at a time when Zelensky is due to visit Washington, D.C., and when Ukraine clearly needs all the assistance that he can get, it is unhelpful, to say the least. And there are fears that U.S. military aid to Ukraine in future could be jeopardised by this. It's a true horror story what's happening in the States. You know, that was kind of the inspiration behind the last film, The Doubters of War Crimes. We literally went around and documented the war crimes and showed them because that influence was seeping into the American psyche of Ukraine's a corrupt country, blah, blah, blah. And now we have a situation where, you know, the voices coming out of Washington are quite astonishingly not just should we be spending this money when it could be spent elsewhere, you know, overtly pro-Putin. You look at people like Tucker Carlson, who have massive, massive influence in the States on public opinion. It's so dangerous to see the American psyche being polluted by the poison that comes out of Washington. 
Yeah, well, you mentioned Tucker Carlson. He's just launched his new Tucker Carlson Network, a subscription-based online streaming service. The film that you referenced, just in case people aren't up to speed, Paul, is the film that you and Zarina made with John Sweeney, War on the Eastern Front, which is a fantastic film made for Byline TV, and it is well worth checking out as well. And you talked about the importance of this conflict, Paul. For people who don't get it why is it vital to people here in the uk where i'm speaking from for people in the united states who might be listening to this podcast why is it so important for ukraine to resist putin putin has delusional fantasies about the russian empire and that's an expansionist view so all of them countries that got out you know the first to get out were like lithuania estonia latvia Poland, all joined NATO because they inherently knew the dangers of an expansionist Russia, and that is what we have. If support was pulled, then Russia is already devoting a third of its GDP to rebuilding its military. They are building factories, tanks, they are rearming constantly. This does not end at the Ukrainian border. If Ukraine falls, Poland, though, All of the countries bordering Russia know Finland and Sweden want in on NATO because they see the real danger posed to Europe. The new film we're making at the moment, at the very end, people go, Ukraine is the border, we are the border, we're fighting the border, we're holding the border on behalf of Europe. If Ukraine fails, then the Russian influence into Europe, into mainland Europe, as we know it now, is going to happen. It's not an if. It's a when that Russia will look beyond its current borders after Ukraine. It's critical that they're defeated. I do not believe that any peace treaty signed with Russia, you know, if Ukraine were forced to negotiate and table, I believe any treaty would not literally be worth the paper it was written on because Putin has proved time and time again that he is not to be trusted. I want to jump in on something that you said, Adrian, because it caught my attention. It's like my definition of the hybrid war. And it's very indicative of the not enough knowledge about it in the West. In Russia, there are textbooks written about it. There's a doctrine by Gerasimov. They are living it. They are fighting it. It's happening, but it's happening invisible to the West. There are rules for it. And what you've just mentioned, talking about the U.S. and the danger of the U.S. leaving NATO and all the conflicts with the European Union and disagreements. Again, it's a classic move. It's divide and conquer. It's all in the toolbox. And then we have Tucker Carlson. That's the agent of influence. And so when you see on what's happening there, it's not the chain of unfortunate events that just happen to be there. There's a term for it. The political technologists behind it who sit there and plan it. And on our end, we are not offering the defense. The defense is lacking. So Ukraine, on the other hand, has a very strong understanding of what the hybrid war is. They've been fighting it for longer than just 10 years when officially it started in 2014 with the Russian invasion. But they've been fighting it way before, ever since they decided to become independent. And there's great understanding of what's happening. Every old 
lady standing in line for milk knows what the hybrid voice. In fact, I'll tell you an anecdote. I go to a yoga studio and there are nice ladies doing all kinds of fly yoga and Pilates and stuff. It's great. supports you through daily horror. And I mentioned in passing that some of my Western colleagues were not sure what the hybrid war is. And the, the ladies in the class who are saleswomen, you know, like they have nothing to do with political science, were appalled and wouldn't believe me. That like every child here knows what the hybrid war is. And we need to work on it as the media, as journalists. We need to bring this understanding to our audiences. And I hope that everybody who's listening to me now, screaming to you from your son, go and learn something about the hybrid war because it will be helpful to each and every one of us. So we are not conquered by a totalitarian dictatorship. Essentially, by hybrid war, you mean a war that is fought on a number of fronts, that is fought through propaganda, through influence, as well as a military conflict. Basically, yes. It is fought in every aspect of life, economical, political, legal, such as lawfare, and weaponizing every aspect of life, such as culture, by the way, or science or sports, and using it as weapon. Thank you so much, Zarina. Thank you as well to Paul. And if you do want to watch the film in which Paul and Zarina and our brilliant filmmaker, Kaylin Robertson and John Sweeney appear, it is called The Eastern Front. And you can check that out. Go to byline.tv slash Putin documentary. That's byline.tv slash Putin documentary. And as the guys have said, there is another film on its way. And we'll preview that just as soon as we can here on the Byline Times podcast. Before we go, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper where you can read offerings from Serena and sometimes from Paul as well. And the way to guarantee a copy of the Byline Times is to take out a subscription. Head over to our website, bylinetimes.com, to find out how to subscribe. You can also see us now on selected newsstands as well. But uh, the best way to guarantee a copy and to support this podcast is to go to bylinetimes.com and take out a subscription and maybe even buy a subscription for Christmas for a friend. Go on, you know it makes sense. This has been a We Bring Audio production produced in Birmingham by me, Adrian Goldberg and Harvey White. Wish you well, Zarina. Wish you well, Paul. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Thank you.